thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning to you, Chris. I hope you're well. Oh, I certainly am. Yes, and I hope you are too. Good morning. I, I am most definitely. We've already got lots of people who've called in, and that's fantastic, and Twitter questions. But before we do so, we, of course, always start with a, a science story of the week, and this week it is dark matter. Yeah, I thought I'd push the boundaries of physics a bit because we often end up talking about things like medicine and biology. So I thought we'd go out there into the yes. deep unknown and the origins of the universe this week because there's a pair of papers in the journal Nature which suggest that there might be some new physics for us to find. Now, the two papers have actually been commented on by a chap called Lincoln Greenhill, who's written a very nice what we call News and Views article, which brings together the key elements of both. And it's, it's a good read. Now, what the story is all about is that researchers used a very simple radio antenna, very, very well built, very accurate, but it was looking at the same sorts of frequencies that FM radio and television transmit at. And they were actually looking at various aspects of the, of the deep, dark sky out in the, out in the universe. And they were retrieving signals which are effectively echoes left over from the Big Bang. So they're looking at radio signals that date back to when the universe first formed. Now, what's interesting is that they can look at one particular range of frequencies which correspond to hydrogen gas. Because one of the main things that formed when the universe formed was a large amount of hydrogen gas. And you can work out by looking at how that gas absorbs radiation, how hot it must be. So effectively, you've got a way of giving the universe a temperature measurement at uh, this point in its lifetime. Now, when they make that temperature measurement, they find that the gas is colder by quite a considerable margin than it should be. Now, the only place that the heat could have gone is into other hydrogen, which doesn't make sense, or into one of the other things that was around at the time of the Big Bang, and that was dark matter. So what they think has happened is that the dark matter has in some way stolen this heat away from the hydrogen, and this flies completely in the face of our current understanding of dark matter, which is this stuff we call dark We can't see it, we can't measure it, we can only infer its presence because we know it has a lot of mass and it has gravity and it makes things move in a certain way and we can see its influence. It makes up 25% of the mass of the universe, but we've no idea what it is. Now we have an insight into how it was behaving right at the beginning of the universe and evidence that maybe it can interact, albeit very weakly, with matter like hydrogen. So this is a new beginning of our understanding of one of the major constituents of our universe that previously we had no idea what it was. Amazing. Let's go to Alberton. Eddie, you're our first caller. What is your question for Chris? Uh, Thank you, Steve. Uh, Good morning, Chris. Chris, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that little trick question that that people like to ask, which is, uh, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? So I'd (laughs) like to, instead of looking in the past, I'd like to look into the future. And I'd like, to, I'd like to pose a similar question and say, in a world where our roads are driven on solely by uh, self-drive cars, will those cars, in your opinion, need brake lights and indicators? <laughs> what a wonderful question. And I, I did wonder where that was going for a minute. Yeah. Um, 
Well, the, the great virtue of using technology is that unlike humans, technology does not make mistakes. And a really good stat I have on this is we were talking to the engineering giant Rolls-Royce recently. This is the company based in Derby, England, who make about a third of the world's jet engines. So they are some of the world's best engineers. Another project that Rolls-Royce have is an autonomous shipping program. They are pioneering a driverless ship project, which is already underway. And they are aiming to remove all the humans from ships so that actually ships will drive themselves. And the chances of ships having accidents is actually a lot lower than cars having accidents. But the point that the engineers at Rolls-Royce made to me is if you look at what's gone wrong in shipping in recent history, then roughly 100% of the problems have been attributable to humans making mistakes. Now, if you write your software properly and you build your machines properly, they're not flawed like humans are. They don't make human mistakes. Things can still go wrong, but they don't make the kinds of mistakes that humans do. They don't have lapses of attention. They don't get disturbed and distracted by the phone ringing and take their eyes off where they should be going and answer the phone, or shouldn't be doing that anyway, but this is what happens. So in answer to your question, the reason we have brake lights is to try to warn flaky humans who are flawed and make loads of mistakes that the car in front's probably going to be stopping, so you should do the same. Yeah. We will be able to streamline that process. We won't need brake lights, I wouldn't have thought, but we will need ways of warning people because there will still be people wandering around and most of the accidents that happen are because people step out into the road in front of approaching vehicles and so making them more visible is important. The other thing that uh, driverless vehicles are going to enable us to do is because they're all segged together, because the vehicle in front is talking to the vehicle behind and so on and so on, actually the timing can be very precise. You can run these things really close together and you just apply the brakes to the whole train of cars and you do it, you do it automatically. And it means that, that you can have very, very small gaps between them, which is good from an air resistance point of view. It's good from a road efficient use point of view. And it means there are virtually no delays at traffic lights compared with the current situation where there's about half an hour's delay while one person drives off and then the person who was in the traffic jam behind has stopped supplying their makeup or picking their nose or whatever they're doing. And then they think, oh, I better drive off now. And, and this introduces huge delays. That could be solved. We've got lots of fun questions on Twitter. Here's one of them. Um, someone wants to know from you, Chris, why do babies emote, or I suppose more precisely gesticulate when they are emoting, with their legs? Right. Well, we've all had, you know, if you've got kids, you've all had the experience where you put them down on a mat or in a baby bouncer or something, and they kick furiously and shake their limbs all over the place. <laughs> Why are they doing that? Well, the answer is that unlike some animals, if you take animals that, that are born like a zebra or a horse... These animals have to be very active from the minute they're born, whereas humans are not very well developed when they're born. And the reason is that an animal like a zebra has got to be able to be almost autonomous. It's going to feed from its mother, but it's got to be able to look after itself because otherwise it will be eaten. Humans are a social species. We have evolved to look after our young. And because we have a huge head and a big brain, which is going to get even bigger, there's a limit on how developed our nervous system can be at the time we are born. So we compromise. We give birth to a baby which is less developed than it is going to have to be, but we spend more time looking after it. So that means babies' brains and the motor pathways in their brains are not very well developed at the time of birth. Some, some pathways, some nerve systems are better developed, but many are not. And what the baby is doing when it's kicking and moving is that it's actually training its nervous system. It's developing the motor pathways and the feedback loops in its nervous system 
so it knows, and I say knows in inverted commas, how one particular action begets another reaction. So it's effectively training its nervous system. And you, you are therefore getting this conversation going between nerves and muscles, you're building up muscles, you're strengthening muscles, and you're strengthening your ability to coordinate those muscles. And this reflects an underlying developmental process in the nervous system. And it's a consequence of the fact that we are born being absolutely useless. And were it not for our parents, we wouldn't survive five minutes. Okay, Sherry, thank you so much for holding on. Go ahead. I'm delighted to be able to speak to Chris in person. Um, it's about the tea experiment. Um, long ago, um, I did, um, I'm retired now, but I did physics and chemistry at university, and I actually practiced as a physicist all my working life. So um, I was fascinated by that as an object, as an avid tea drinker. And I found that, yes, I concurred with the person who originally phoned in's views um, on how the tea um, floats, the milk floats slightly below the surface of the tea if one pours it in, being careful to use a clean cup um, each time. It doesn't matter because I drink lots of tea. And uh, if you put the, the sugar in first, the um, the milk then sort of, it doesn't rise immediately to the surface, but you've got the um, little strings of gradually melting sugar finding their way to the top and creating turbulence. Um, so I went one further, and I actually um, made the tea, stirred in um, the tea, the sugar, so that it completely dissolved, and then poured the milk in. But um, then I noticed that the milk still sat on the top. So I'd love to know what Chris has come up with. <laughs> Chris, I think our callers are going to eventually force you to write a paper or three on tea. <laughs> it's, it's looking that way, isn't it? Well, look, I'm, I'll let the cat out of the bag a little bit because we're about, about a nanometer away yeah. from actually saying what we're going to do in South Africa this Easter. And one of the things yes. we're going to be doing is going to be with 702. So I am thinking that what we're going to do is when we're doing that, we come and do the experiment properly and we'll do it on air. Great minds think alike. We will do this and, uh, and then we'll actually come up with both the experiment, the data, test it properly and we'll come up with some explanations. Yes. And we'll do it live in front of people so that everyone can, can see what we're doing and we can then hopefully nail this one. And then maybe we can write a big <laughs> science paper which has the entire 702 and Cape Talk audience involved. <laughs> And footnoted in the acknowledgements. <laughs> One of the of big, <laughs> biggest authorship in history. 30,000 people. <laughs> Let's take another fun one from Twitter. Uh, this man, I'm sure you've been asked this before, I would imagine. Yawning appears to be contagious. Is it? And why? Yes, yawning is most certainly contagious. We've talked about this a, a little bit in the past. And the evidence is that um, humans have evolved to yawn to improve arousal and alertness. Now, the suggestion is that yawning occurs to cool your brain because a tired brain is a hotter brain. And a tired brain that's potentially losing its vigilance means that you're more likely to be eaten by something in our evolutionary past. Whereas if you yawn um, and you make the person next door to you who's probably also nodding off yawn, both of you become more alert, less likely to get eaten. Evidence for this is there was a paper published by uh, Gordon Gallup at the City University of New York in the mid-noughties. And he got a bunch of students, showed them videos of people yawning, didn't tell them why they were watching these films, and counted how many times they yawned in sympathy with the video, proving, yes, that yawning appears to be contagious because mm. people were catching yawns off the video. 
Then what he did was to ask the students randomly either to breathe through their mouths or to hold a cold compress onto their forehead. The breathing through the mouth bypasses any cold air going up through the nose, which could cool the head, cool the blood vessels in the head and cool your brain. Breathing through or holding a cold compress onto your head obviously has the effect of cooling the brain. When he did this, he found that the rate of yawning in the people breathing through their mouth rose and became even higher. The people holding the cold compress onto their head, the rate of yawning dramatically dropped. And this strongly suggests that yawning and contagious yawning in sympathy with other people yawning is a brain cooling manoeuvre to increase your alertness so you're less likely to be eaten. And that's why we have evolved to catch yawns. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Remember to also follow at Naked Scientist if you have curiosity about questions. Um, I've just retweeted there some further link to the puzzle around why do we yawn, if you want to read a little bit more. Let's go back to the lines, Chris. Janine is our next caller. Janine, thanks for your patience. What is your question for the Naked Scientist? Hi, Chris. Hi, Eusebius. Um, Chris, I am 19 weeks pregnant and my gynecologist has found a high count of antibodies in my bloodstream. And I've tested positive twice already and he's just a bit concerned and he's never came across something like this. So I'd just like to find out, should I be worried? What should I do? I'm seeing a specialist on Monday. So just to sleep better over the weekend, I'd just like to find out what should I do and what should I be concerned about. I listen on the radio. Thank you. Thank you, Janine. Congratulations. No pressure, Chris. Can you make her sleep better over the weekend? Hello, Janine. Congratulations. Um, There's a few other follow-up questions that I would like to ask, but just talking generically for a second, the most reassuring thing is that someone has been testing things and has checked something, and they've found something that they want to investigate further, which means that it's being followed up. And that's the most important thing, because following up things you find is important, because if you overlook something or ignore something, then bad things can happen. Much better to be in a position of knowledge. Now, you don't say what these antibodies are, and there are lots of different things that you could be being tested for. There are lots of things that we screen for when women are pregnant to make sure that we minimise any risks to the child. So um, without further information on what these antibodies are, it's very difficult for me to say any more than other than I'm reassured by the fact that someone has found something Mm. and that they're going to check you out. Um, I, I, I haven't heard many people come to me and say, well... You know, I've had antibodies detected in pregnancy. Everyone's got antibodies. The blood is full of antibodies. If we didn't have antibodies, we'd be covered with infections and things would be you know, punishing us all the time. So everyone's got antibodies. It may well be that these particular antibodies can do something under certain circumstances. And so they want to make sure that you're not at any risk. But do make sure that you ask all the right questions next week when you see the, your, your specialist in terms of what are the impacts of this. Is, is any treatment going to be necessary? And feel free to drop me an email to chris at nakedscientist.com and, uh, and I'll see if I can follow up with any more information or questions for you if I have the chance. Thank you, Chris. Tessa, good morning. Hi, how are you? We're good. Thank you, Tessa. Thanks for calling in. Um, I've got a very strange question. I've always wondered how butter came about. Good question. So, the question was how butter came about. Yes. Did a, did a farmer go trotting off to the fair with his <laughs> urns of milk and when he got there it was all yucky on the top or how oh, did butter come about? Fair enough. Well, of course, the way we make butter is that butter, you, you get butter from milk and milk is very fatty and the reason milk is very fatty is that 
a cow is big and it has to pass a lot of calories into the young baby calf so the calf can grow, build muscle, build body mass and become a big cow because when it's small, it's vulnerable, something will eat it. If it can grow big quickly, it's got more chances of surviving and reproducing itself. So the way you get lots of calories very quickly into your offspring is you make your milk very, very fatty because oil has an extremely high embodied energy. In other words, the amount of energy in the bonds, the chemical bonds in the oil, is very high. And when the baby breaks those bonds and makes new bonds with them, it can release a lot of energy. So it's a good way to get lots of calories very efficiently into your offspring. Now, when we uh, therefore shake up milk, what you can do is to separate the the oily bits from the watery bits. And so when you uh, when you sort of beat up milk and churn it you can form um, globules of, of oil which are there into bigger globules and bigger globules and eventually all the oil joins together and forms this pat of butter with the butter milk the watery stuff on top and you separate that off now i don't know exactly how someone first invented butter but they were probably looking for a way to store energy and calories efficiently just like you know we, we do in the fridge these days they thought how, how do we do that how do we stop milk going off they they made cheese along the way by accident as well but probably by carting milk around and, and and sort of vibrating it and shaking it by just physically moving it around they probably did what a churn does and make all the little dissolved globules of fat merge into big globules and then big insoluble blobs of fat and that's how butter came about i'm speculating but that's basically what butter is it's the it's the fat out of the milk which is all the little globules have joined together to make one big pat of butter i want to take one last one from twitter and then if we have another chance we'll go back to the lines for a final one uh, someone asked earlier on twitter and i've got it right here is there a limit to how smart an individual can be? And I'd like to tag on my own curiosity to that question, Chris. Sometimes we hear things like, I don't know, the average human uses 5% of their brain capacity. How do we know what the, I don't know, upper limit is of our intellectual capacity or our brain capacity? Well, actually, we don't. And this is the extraordinary thing. And you think there are geniuses in history. And there are geniuses who make amazing music. There are geniuses with mathematics. There are geniuses in many aspects of, of life. And the human brain is an amazing thing because it's got about 100 billion nerve cells in it and those 100 billion nerve cells each make about 5,000 connections or more to other nerve cells and those connections can all be refined or shaped or changed but our brain wires itself up and builds itself from first principles using a vague instruction manual but with a bit of noise thrown in and by noise I mean that there's some variation, randomness to the way the brain wires itself. So everyone's brain is unique and everyone's brain is like a sponge. It has the ability to be shaped and moulded and adjusted and adapted by your day-to-day -day and week-to-week, year-to-year experience. So we are the product of the life we live. And therefore, the realms of possibility and the degrees of freedom are absolutely huge. With this hundreds of billions of nerve cells making thousands and thousands of connections multiplied by billions of people on Earth, all we need is for people, and I say all we need, is for people to have a good education and a rich environment to grow in because then they have the best prospects of realising the potential of what their brain is capable of. But basically, with this huge degree of diversity on Earth, you're going to find people who are really, really, really good at stuff um, in particular areas because their brain has, by chance, wired itself and been moulded and shaped 
to do certain things extremely well. And those are the people who are the supreme musicians, the supreme artists, the supreme physicists, the supreme mathematicians, people who are really, really good at sports, for example, because sporting uh, ability is also all about how your nervous system interacts uh, with the environment around you and makes your body move in the most optimal way to, to win at that sport. Now, just to pick up on your last point, Eusebius, you said there are these reports that people only use sort of 5 or 10% of their brain all the time. There are some of those people. We know them. They go on Twitter quite a lot. Um, one, of, one of them's running a big country on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, but on the whole, um, this is a complete myth, OK? There's no evidence that people only use 10% of their brain. Nature, evolution, wouldn't let you do that because the brain is so metabolically hungry. It uses so much energy. Nature would not let you have such a wasteful organ and it would not compromise your ability to, to pop out from your mum by having such a big head. So you need all your brain. It's there for a reason and we we use all of it all the time but what we do do is to use some parts of it more at certain moments in time because different parts of the brain are highly specialized for doing different tasks so when you're reading you're using visual areas language areas and you're re increasing relatively speaking the activity of those areas over other areas but you need 100 percent of your brain thank you chris stunning we'll do it again next week and already looking forward to your trip to south africa we'll get more information in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, but thanks for today Thank you, Eusebius. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.